The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke 17, 1 through 10. So, a couple things. Um, as most of you know, when we teach here, we don't just randomly pick stuff. Um, we are working through the scriptures verse by verse. So we did the text right before this last week. Next week, we will do the text right after that, and we work through. But we do have a kind of a teaching team here. Um, while I may do more of them, as you guys know, we have Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Sam, and others who will teach at different times. And that's on purpose for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it's good for us to give other people opportunity to practice their giftings and, and to be able to speak the Word of God. Um, it's good for you to know that you don't follow some guy, you follow the man. And I'm talking about Jesus, definitely not Jeff, right? And so it's really good for us to remember that, man, the Word of God is the part that's important. The mouthpiece, he's just a mouthpiece, and there's lots of mouthpieces, amen? So, so we do that, and so what we end up doing is we sit together, and we work through the calendar, and we divvy up the text, and we go, okay, here's what we're going to do this week, and here's what we're going to do this week, and here's what we're going to do this week. So it's scheduled out well in advance, so we know what text we're going to be. And so when I knew that this passage was mine, and I saw it on the calendar, and I saw the story, I was like, sweet, easy week. I deserve a few of those. I've had some tough ones lately. But I was like, oh, that'll be an easy week. The, it's, it's, the, it's the lepers, 10 of them. He heals 10, nine keep going on their way. One dude goes, oh, I should say thank you, and comes back. And so the moral of the story is clearly thankfulness. Be like the one, don't be like the nine. I barely need to study. This will be a piece of cake until I started reading it. And then I realized that's not what this is about at all. That's not the emphasis. It, is thankfulness good? Of course it is. Of course it is. I want my kids to be thankful. I, I, we want to be thankful people. But is that what this is really, like, is the purpose of having this in this ste- section right here, is the purpose, like, and now I want people to be really thankful, so I'm going to share this story. And I would say, no. It's a, it's a byproduct. That's not the purpose of the story. So you go, so what is the purpose of the story? Well, let me clarify a couple of things. First of all, remember, the Bible is not a collection of moral tales, fables, or lessons. It's not. I know it gets used that way. That's not what it is. Is there moral lessons in it? Absolutely. Are there things in here that teach us how to be godly people, how to do all those things? Without question. But is that what its purpose is? No. This book is one continuing story, start to finish, that tells us who God is and what God is doing. It's really the simplest way to say it. The Bible is the revelation of God to man and the story of what God is doing to rescue mankind and to put everything back together again the way it was originally intended. It tells us who God is and what God is doing. And Everything, as you read through the Bible, is telling that story all along the way. And so this particular part that we're in right now is the book of Luke. It's written in terms of the guy who held the pen is a guy named Luke. He was inspired by the Spirit of God, so it was a, it was a combination between the Spirit of God and, and the hand and creativity and, and whatnot of man to write this. But I want to remind you that he's doing something really important. He's not just slapping together a bunch of stories about Jesus and then went, Oh man, we need one about Thanksgiving, thankfulness. That'd be really good because Pastor Jeff one day is going to have a Thanksgiving service and he's going to need something to teach from, so I'll throw this in here, which is what I have done. 
that's not what Luke was doing. Luke actually tells us what he was doing at the beginning. And I know we've been in Luke for a while, so it's easy to forget because that was like 10 years ago when we covered this text. But take a look with me on the screen at the very beginning of the book of Luke and look what it says. Luke writes this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account, that's important, for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In other words, this, he's like, look, a lot of people have been writing and telling the stories of Jesus. Many people, many people were eyewitnesses to it. Many people have been writing about this and trying to comprehend what really even went down. And, and I felt prompted, it seemed right to me to do the same thing. So I sat down, most excellent Theophilus, this is who he's writing to originally. I felt like it was important to me to write down a orderly account. That's important. Think about that. That means orderly. I'm doing this with intentionality. It's not random stuff all thrown together. I'm really thinking this through. I've talked to lots of people who shared lots of stories, and I've been tracking this stuff myself for a really, really long time. And so I've got to a point where I'm like, I'm putting this all together orderly, intentionally. I'm really thinking this through as I go, most excellent Theophilus. Why? And he says, so that you may have certainty concerning these things that went down. And if you remember back when we were in this text, that word certainty, it's asvalion. It, it, it's the idea of that we might know it to be true like we know a mountain to be real. Like it's, it's real. It's massive. It is immovable. It really, truly happened. Not some vain philosophy or vague philosophy where it's almost like a, trying to grab at a cloud. It's, it's sort of there, but you can't really grab it. He's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not writing this stuff down so that you can go, it might be real. He's like, no, this is so you will absolutely know. Know what? The same thing the Bible's telling all along. Who is Jesus and what did he do? Who is Jesus and what is he doing? That is the purpose of everything that's in this book. And that's the question that Luke begins to answer as he works his way through this, this book of Luke all along. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. He wants him to understand Jesus is real. Jesus really did these things. He's not trying to swindle him or anything. He's like, I want you to know that this is like real, like a mountain real this happened. Here's who Jesus is, and here's what he did. So think about it, how the story comes up. This actually happens all the way through Scripture. It starts out, we go through the birth narratives in Luke 2, all the stories we'll read at Christmas and all that kind of stuff. And we get to this story in Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus comes into the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, and, and he takes the scroll. He's this, people are hearing about him. He's a gifted teacher. He knows the Scriptures left and right. I mean, he kind of wrote them, but yeah. So he understands all this stuff, right? And so he goes in there to teach, and he opens up the scroll, and all these people are there, and he reads a text, if you guys remember, that every Jewish person there would know and love, because it's a text about the Messiah. 
the Jewish people had been expecting this guy referred to as the Messiah who was going to come and set everything right. Israel would no longer be under the oppressive thumb of Rome. They would be free. The kingdom of God would be reestablished. Justice would be right. Everything broken in the world would be fixed. This great leader was going to come and fix everything. He was known as the Messiah. And there were all these prophetic texts in the Old Testament that talked about what he would do when he came. And so Jesus comes into the synagogue. He opens up the scroll. And not by accident, he goes to a text that talks about that Messiah. So he, he's reading something that's about himself. And so this is what he reads in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he, this is Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So think about what's happening here. He reads about what the Messiah is going to do, and then he sits down and he says, guys, I'm here. In other words, he says, this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. I am the Messiah, and I'm here to, I'm going to give sight to the blind. I'm going to preach good news to the poor. I'm going to re, uh, like fix the brokenhearted. These are the things that I'm going to do. Now, the people of Israel, they've been waiting for this for a very long time, so they're kind of excited and kind of confused at the same time. Like, they're happy about what he said. They're like, well, this is great. We've been waiting on that guy for a long time. Except um, we expected more of a Rambo-looking kind of guy. Like, we expected somebody was going to come in and kick doors down and say, I'm here to fix everything. And I mean, this is Joseph's kid. I mean, that's cool if that's what it is. Like, I'm, I'm not saying no. I'm just, just look, this is Joseph's kid? That's the guy? And then things continue to progress. The same questions being answered. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals the widow's son. Do you remember that? He comes along that funeral procession. You never want to, just trust me on this, you never want to interrupt a funeral unless you can do this. <laughs> he, he comes up to the funeral procession and says to this dead kid, wake up, get up. And, and again, don't try that. Unless you can do what he does, because the kid does. He, he, he gets up and people are absolutely amazed. And in Luke 7, verse 16, it says, Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So think about that. Look at the text there. There were two things being said. One of them was like, God has come. And the other is like, this guy's pretty cool. That's essentially what's being said. So now that's better than it's just Joseph's kid. We're making progress, but we're not quite there yet. There's still confusion on who is he and why is this guy here? But word's spreading. 
Words getting out about some of these things that happen. Then think about Luke chapter 7. Remember in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, his disciple, he was the forerunner of Jesus. He was to come before Jesus and tell everyone, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And now John the Baptist is in jail, which is difficult because as the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist would have been teaching that text in Isaiah previously that says things like, Jesus will come and set captives free. And John the Baptist is like, um, dude, when? Like, it's, it's, I think I'm going to die in here. They're not giving the vibe that I'm getting out anytime soon. And I've been going around saying that the Messiah was going to come and set everybody free. And I've been telling everybody it was you, Jesus, and I'm still here. I'm still in jail. And so he grabs one of his disciples who comes and visits him at the prison. And John the Baptist says, look, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one we've been waiting on or should we wait for someone else? And do you remember what Jesus did? He doesn't go, oh, tell John to quit whining and just deal with it like a man. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. They ask him, Jesus, John the Baptist wants to know, are are you the one that we're waiting on or, or, or should he wait for someone else? And Jesus goes, I want you to watch something. And he turns around. Do you remember what the scriptures say? He starts casting demons out of people. He starts healing people from sicknesses and illness. Like he starts, he starts doing all the things that Isaiah passage says that the Messiah would do right in front of them. They're seeing all this stuff happen. And then he turns around to them and he goes, now go tell John the Baptist what you've seen. In other words, hey, go tell John everything's moving along just as planned. All the stuff that you've expected about me, it's happening everything's coming to plan. And so he goes back and tells him. Then we get into this thing with his disciples. So Jesus gets his 12 disciples, these 12 guys that are following him, and he's really pouring into them. And do you remember the story on the boat? I'm a fisherman. I like boat stories. Jesus is exhausted. He's been doing a lot of ministry. There's a lot of people that are wanting things from him, and they get on this boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is so tired, he just, he lays down and he goes totally to sleep, and this massive storm comes. And the disciples, some of which were fishermen too by trade, they have been on that water a lot. The storm is so bad that they are absolutely convinced we are going to die. We are not surviving this one. And Jesus is still asleep. And so they go to him and they wake him up and, and, and they're like, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And it says that Jesus stands up in the boat, you remember this? And he rebukes the wind and the waves. In other words, he goes, knock it off! And everything instantly goes, like not gradual, it says instantly, boom, it was calm. Instantly. I always wondered like if the boat was on the peak of a wave and that happened, and they're all like, what happened? I don't know how it worked. We'll check the replay in heaven. But this really happens. And the disciples there are, number one, freaked out. And, and, and number two, they, they turn and they're looking at Jesus and they're talking to one another. And what is it they say? They go, what manner of man is this that the wind and sea obey him? They're wrestling with that same question, just like John was. Is, who are you? What is he doing? And so then, what ends up happening? Uh, we have in Luke, 9 to, in Luke 9, verse 18, we have the famous confession of Peter. So we'll put the text up on this. Take a look at this. In Luke 9, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, 
Who do the crowds say that I am? Interesting question when you think about how this has been unfolding all the way through the text and what Luke is intentionally writing. Remember, Luke is writing an orderly account. He's doing all of this and it is organized on purpose. It's orderly. And it's inspired by the Spirit of God as well. So here's Jesus. He's praying along. And he says to the guys, hey, who does everybody out there say that I am? And look at the response. It's the same answer that we've seen before. Well, they answered John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets of old that has risen. Remember the original, uh, just what we saw a few, just a little while ago, where they were like, who is this guy? Some said, God has visited us. And other people were like, that one of the prophets is here. This man is an amazing prophet. So there's all this confusion among a lot of people and a lot of different ideas on who Jesus might be. And so Jesus then turns to them, though, and it says, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, which Christ, that's that title. In other words, the Messiah of God. He's saying, you are the expected Messiah. You are the one that we have been waiting on. You are the son of God who has come to put everything back together. He's like, I know who this is. And you guys remember the account, the, the, the uh, same account, account of the same story that's in Matthew. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter, or Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit of God. In other words, he's like, Peter, you did not come up with this on your own, to which the rest of us who know the stories of Peter would say, clearly Peter did not come up with this on his own. He would have come up with who knows what. He's like, no, look, God has shown you who I am. He's revealed this to you. And then the very next thing that happens is called, we refer to it now as the Mount of Transfiguration. So think about it. Peter declares, you are God, the Messiah. And then they go up on top of this mountain. And there on top of the mountain, you remember what happens. Jesus just suddenly begins to just radiate like lightning begins to just glow. And some people look at that as the miracle. Like Jesus went on top of this mountain and just began to glow. But, but I like the way it's been said before. Like, no, that was a pause in an ongoing miracle. The miracle is that, that God himself could be flesh like this. And in that moment, it's like flesh was like, we can't hold this back. We need a break. And the glory of God is just bursting out. And now they see it. So think about this. Here's the disciples and these guys. They've heard Jesus say that he's God. Now they have declared that Jesus is God. And now they see this is God. We now know what manner of person this is. We know exactly who this is. And at that point, at that point, it says Jesus resolved to head towards Jerusalem. Again, Luke writes on purpose. So here's this. Who is God? Well, who is this guy? Who is this manner of man? Who is all this stuff? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Mount of transfiguration, light bursting out. Everyone knows who it is. And then at that point, it says Jesus turns his head towards Jerusalem. There in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, I think. I'm going to Jerusalem. It means he resolved. He determined. It means that's where we're headed and nothing will sidetrack us. That's where I'm going. Why? We have the answer as readers of who is this man? It is Jesus, the Messiah. But remember the other question. What is it he's doing? What is Jesus doing? 
Well, the answer to that, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. You are not allowed to skip church in a few weeks when we get there. But in Luke chapter 19, there's a story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, tax collector, right? The worst of the worst. There's really no modern day equivalent for someone like that. But the culture there would have viewed him as one of the most disgusting human beings on earth. And Jesus is coming through and sees him up in the tree because he was short. And he wanted to be able to see. And he says to Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house to dinner. At which the religious people of that day would have looked and been like, what? You're eating with him? What are you doing? And Jesus goes to his house, and there's these grumblings, like, and they're asking sort of the same question. They're, they're sort of saying the same thing in terms of, who is this Jesus? They're just doing it with a different twist. They're more saying, who does he think he is? That's different, though. And Jesus says, in that moment, in that setting, with that guy, with those people around, he tells us what he's doing. He gives us the answer. We have the answer to who he is. Now he gives us the answer to what he's doing. And it's this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The story being told in Luke. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. And he came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came. And we had ideas of this already because in Luke chapter 5 he said things like, look, the healthy aren't the people who need a doctor. Sick people are the ones who need a doctor. So I didn't come for the unrepentant. I came for the ones who need help. I came to save the people who are lost. I came to help the broken. I came to save the struggling. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so then as he goes on, he goes, so let me tell you a story about a shepherd who lost a sheep. Let me tell you a story about a widow who lost a coin. Let me tell you a story about a father who lost a son. I came to seek the lost. Mitch, no one amened on that. Should I be concerned? Okay. That's really good news to the people that know they're lost, right? It's frustrating news to the people who think they've already been found. And that ends up being a big part of it. The, the people who, who think that they're already found, in other words, the people that are, hey, I'm all, I'm all put together. What, savior, I don't need a savior. I'm doing everything right. Kind of the religious, self-righteous people, that's kind of rubbing some of these guys a little bit wrong. Because you're claiming to be God, the Messiah, and you're saying, and I came for those people, not you. That's hard. And so you have these two groups of people, one who's looking down on the outsiders, looking down their nose, going, how dare he be with them? And they're asking the question about who Jesus is too, but again, it's different. It's not, who is he? It's, who does he think he is? And they're asking the same question too. What is he doing? Not like, what did he come to do? They're going, what does he think he's doing? And then you have these people that are the outcasts of society. Guys, the outcasts in a society like that. I mean, think of the people that are drawn to Jesus. Prostitutes, tax collectors, people possessed with demons, pagans, foreigners, aliens, widows, people that every other element of society right then would ignore or turn their head from. These are people who have been told over and over and over, go, go, 
go. And suddenly Jesus shows up and says, I'm God, come. And they've never heard anything like this before. And the religious leaders have never heard anything like this before. And there's this tension that develops between the two. And it's really important to understand this. And all of that by way of introduction <laughs> points us at Luke 17, verse 11. Because remember, Luke's writing super, he, it's an orderly account, which means detailed and ordered. He thought about what he's trying to, to say here. And so verse 11 starts out with, on the way to where? Jerusalem. Now what do we know? He's going to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And we know he's going to Jerusalem where the sins of the lost, the broken, are going to be placed upon his shoulders as he goes to the cross, where he will pay for the sins of people like Zacchaeus. He will pay for the sins of the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the Jeff Hensleys of the world. He will die paying the price for that sin, but he will rise again. He will defeat sin and death, and that now, even to this day, those of us who will put our faith and our trust in him can be redeemed. Instead of being the outcast, we're brought in. And the whole New Testament talks about this beautiful language, like things like uh, reconciliation, restoration, adopted into the family of God. Like not just a buddy, a son brought into his family, the people on the outside. It's a beautiful thing. So he's going to Jerusalem to do this. That's where he's headed. And then along the way, look what it says. He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a, difference, at a distance. Excuse me. Now again, Luke writes on purpose. So think about what he's saying. As he's going into a village, not as he's in a village, as he's going into a village. Why? Because there's lepers. And if you know much about lepers, you know this. Lepers don't get to go into villages. Lepers are the outcasts. People who had that sickness at that time were completely ostracized from every element of life. If you had family, you're kicked out. If you were part of a community, you're kicked out. You're not going into the synagogue. You're not going into any, you're not even living in the village. So you'd be kicked out of that area and you would live out in the outskirts. And even if people came near you, you had to scream out, unclean, unclean, so that anybody coming by would know that you were a disease ridden man and that they could stay clear of you. You are alone, outcast, outside the city. And notice what it goes on to say. He was met by ten, 10 lepers who what? Who stood at a distance. Yes, because that's what you had to do. There's no human contact with them except other lepers. And so you had to stand back at a distance. And these guys would come together in many cases. You'll see in the scriptures where lepers are in these groups. Why? Because there's no one else they can be with. It's not just a misery loves company. It's a I am alone. I am completely alone. I am completely kicked away from my family. But these guys have heard those stories going through the area. And they've heard about this guy named Jesus. And they've heard about some things that are going. And so when Jesus is coming and they know about it, they approach him. And what do they do? Look at verse 13. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, I just said that wrong, just so you know. Because the words where it says, and they lifted up their voices, the Greek words there are phonis mangalis. Think about it again. Phonis megalis. Megaphone is where the word come from. In other words, they are shouting out to Jesus, 
Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Nothing has worked for us. No medical attention has fixed us. No religious ceremonies have fixed us. No one can help us. I have been ostracized from family. I can't work. I, I'm starving. I have no food. I have no friends. I haven't seen my family. I'm not part of community. I'm absolutely alone. And I can't pay you for anything that you can do for me. So I need mercy. I need your help. They're begging him for mercy. And there is nothing that they can offer him in exchange except disease. They have nothing to give him. Just that's, that's what mercy is. We can't repay you. We can't do anything about it. We are out of options. Please help us. We need your mercy. So verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And notice a couple things. First of all, number one, he saw them. That's significant. Like, because that would be the kind of people that most of us, if we were walking into the city and they were over there, we would want, we wouldn't want to look at that. I mean, who knows the condition of their skin, their physical appearance, how, how progressed the disease is at that point. And remember too, in that culture, if you had a disease like that, it was viewed as if you had some curse from God. God is angry at you. So you're not just sick, you're cursed. So it's, we don't want anything to do with them. Kick them out of the city, get them out of our sight. We don't want anything to do. And yet when they cry out to Jesus, he doesn't just hear their cry, but he turns to them and he sees them. And let me tell you, that's part of the very character of God from the beginning. If you go back into Exodus, when the people of Israel are in slavery, they're oppressed. It says that they cried out to God and he heard their cries and he moved towards them. And you got to know this. God cares about our struggles. He cares. He cares about our cries. When people are struggling, you've got to point them to God and tell them, like, cry out, scream it, get a megaphone. God hears you. He cares about our suffering. It's why Jesus came to begin with. So here's Jesus. He's set towards Jerusalem. I'm going there. And here come some outsiders, and they're crying out. And it says, and he, he saw them. He turns to them. So notice This is not a diversion from mission because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the mission. And here's some of them there. And so the second thing he says, go, or the second thing we see in that verse, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now don't read that like, they're like, please help us. Uh, Dude, I'm I'm going to Jerusalem, go see the priest. Like that's, that's not what this is. The priest then would serve as sort of health inspectors for people who had leprosy. So if you had leprosy and you feel like maybe God's healed you or medicine's healed you or whatever it was that healed you, you would have to go to the temple to go to the priest and you would go through a process that lasted about a week. And they would inspect you, you would offer sacrifices, there's things that you would do during that time. And at the end of the week, they would determine whether they agreed. Yes, God has healed you and so now you can be restored to your family. Or they would say, no, You've not been healed, so 
you have to leave. You have to be still ostracized. You're still on the outside. You're still without hope. The priests are the one who would inspect to see what's going on. So when Jesus says, go to see the priests, he's pointing them to that is what he's doing. It's not a cold statement at all. He's pointing them to where they would have to go for the rest of that culture to welcome them back in to their, their societies. But the third thing to notice, though, is he's calling them to do that by faith, though. Because he doesn't heal them, go, you're good, now go. He says, go see the priests. You, you, you need mercy, you have no hope, you've tried everything, you have nowhere to go, nothing else has worked. Okay, this time, trust me. Go see the priests. And, and they go. Look what happens, verse 15. No, I'm sorry, verse 14. Go show yourselves to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. The leprosy is miraculously healed as they're going towards the priests. So 10 lepers go see the priests. 10 lepers begin walking away, and they're all healed as they go, all 10. And then look, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So here it is. Thanksgiving message, right? Ten get healed. They all go. One's like, wait a minute, I should be thankful. And comes back, falls at Jesus' feet and gives thanks, right? See, this is where I think this sort of falls apart. Remember, Luke is writing with great intentionality. It is an orderly, detailed account. There are no wasted words, okay? And he says, by the way, this one was a Samaritan. I think there's two things that happen there. Number one, there's shock treatment. Because let's talk about who a, a, a Samaritan is. Samaritans were people who many years past, when Israel had been uh, raided and the people of Israel taken off into captivity, there were some of the Jewish people who instead of holding to their own people, holding to their own culture, they intermarried with the very people that were, that were their captors. And, and the bloodline that resulted out of that the Jewish people looked at as a mixed breed. It was a very racially charged thing to them. And so they looked at it like, when we were in captivity, you even intermarried with our very captors. You are worthless. And it was a very, very hated thing. There was so much hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. So much. So this guy... He's got two big strikes against him. He's a Samaritan, so the Jews hate him. He's a leper, so no one wants anything to do with him. I guess if he was a tax collector, that's the only way it could be worse. But this guy's got two major strikes against him. And the fact that he's a Samaritan caused problems. Because the Jews did not look at the Samaritans as being Jews anymore at all. They're mixed breeds now. And so when you would come to the temple, for example, to go worship, where could a Samaritan go? You could come into the court of the Gentiles if you didn't get beat up by some racist dude as you're walking your way in, but that's it. You're limited in the amount of worship. You cannot enter into the inner courts. You can't. There's a lot of that type of worship and practice that the Jewish people would do that you are excluded from because of your bloodline, because of who you are. So, track with me on this. These guys, hated by the Jews. Oh, I should add one more part, sorry. So the Samaritan people who can't go in and worship all the way, constantly being abused by the Jewish people, always dealing with all this, what, it, what was their response to that? 
they ended up going and building their own temple. They go into their own land to Gerizim and they build their own temple there. They raise up their own priests and they start doing all their worship there. So if you remember in the book of John when Jesus comes to the woman at the well, remember the woman that was caught up in all sorts of of inappropriate relationships and and multiple men and all this kind of stuff and Jesus talks to her and he kind of calls her out on that like, look, I I know who you are, I know what you've been dealing with and she's like, "Uh, I gotta change the subject, this is too personal. And she goes, well, I'm a Samaritan. And the Jews say that we should be worshiping in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans say that we should be worshiping in Gerizim at the temple that we built. What do you say? And do you remember his response? He doesn't say, well, I understand what you're dealing with, but in all honesty, the Bible only prescribes one temple, and that's in Jerusalem. And and that's important because that's where the actual presence of God is, and we don't have any proof that the presence of God is at the temple in Gerizim. So you're worshiping, but that's a little bit different, and so I really think that they're sort of right. They're being jerks, though. I'll talk to them. But you should go to Jerusalem. That's not what he says. You know what he says? He goes, the day is coming when it won't matter. He says, the day is coming. I'm seeking people who will worship me in spirit and in truth. Not through formulas and prescribed offerings and religious systems or all of those jump through the right hoops and do the right things. I'm looking for people who truly and from their heart will worship me. That's his answer. So now come back to Luke and think. Ten guys get healed. We know at least one is a Samaritan. Jesus says, go to the temple. They all turn and start going to the temple. What do you think the Samaritan starts thinking as he's heading away? Slight speculation here, I know. But where's he supposed to go? Does he go to Jerusalem? Because he's only going to get so far if he goes there. Does he go to Gerizim? Where it's not the real temple? But can I do that? I have a Jewish rabbi that's telling me to go see the priest. So what do I do? What do you do when religion has completely failed you? Where do I go? Here's why I think this story is here. It's not about Thanksgiving, though that is absolutely a byproduct. It's about Jesus. What I mean by that, and I'm not trying to give an overly simplistic answer, I think this guy gets to a point where he's like, I'm going to fail over there, I'm going to fail over there, but I found mercy right here, I'm going back to Jesus. And he throws himself at the feet, the one place he found wholeness, the one place he found sanctuary, the one place he wasn't judged, he wasn't hated. Instead, he was healed and loved and restored. And he comes back. And I think that was actually supposed to be the purpose of all of them. I don't think he was the only thankful one. I'm pretty sure if you had asked the other nine guys, they were probably pretty thankful they got healed too. But the text actually says that as he was healed, verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. As he saw this, I think he saw more than that. I think he saw who Jesus was and he knew there is nothing for me in any of those places anymore because the Messiah is right there. So I'm going there and I'm going to cling to him and I'm going to lay at his feet because I got made whole there. Because he is God. And he came to seek and save that which is lost. And Jesus responds after this to close it out. It says, Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. 
Your faith has made you whole. So let me just cut to it real quick and we'll be done. There are a lot of people that believe in God. There are a lot of people that believe in God. Everyone in this story believes in God. Everyone does. But the question is, what do you do with Jesus? That's what Luke's saying. Luke is writing this so that this guy Theophilus, at the end of the day, when he finishes reading this story, will close this book or scroll, I know, back in the day, set it down with tears on his face and go, I need Jesus because he is God and he came to save me. And the reason that we have this now, 2,000 years later, is because God desires that every single person in this room would today close this book and say, I need Jesus. Whether you've been saved for 10 years or whether you've not yet been saved, I need Jesus. Some of us got saved a long time ago and then we forgot that the purpose of the whole thing was the grace and mercy of Jesus and and we have this tendency to drift back to religion, to go back to, "I, I need to perform a certain way to make sure Jesus likes me. I need to make sure I tithe enough and I need to make sure this is done and I can't do this. And if I mess up, I gotta do something good to balance out the scales. Listen, there's no scales. And if there were, you couldn't possibly do enough to balance them out. You need Jesus as much or more today as you did at the worst day of your life before you had him. Christians should never leave that posture of clinging to the nail-scarred feet of Jesus. Once we're saved, we stay there. And maybe we drift away, but we come back just like him. It's more than thanksgiving, it's worship that we come back to the one who saved us. And when we realize that, when we understand our need, then the, the thanksgiving part, the thankfulness part will totally take care of itself. That will not be a problem. But it's about coming back to Jesus. And then others are chasing chasing heaven. And what I mean by that is, what do I got to do to be okay? What do I got to do? How many good things do I need to do to make sure that I'm in so that I can deal with this guilt that I'm carrying or so I can deal with the fears that I'm carrying or I can deal with the anxiety that I'm carrying or whatever it is? How do I do enough good so that God looks down on me and goes, yeah, he's a pretty good dude. I'll, I'm going to bless him now. And you got to understand, the lepers had nothing to offer him. That's why it says, they, they don't say just help us. They say, have mercy on us, meaning we can't even pay. There's nothing we can give. We just need your help, your grace, your mercy. And that's what you need to know. Look, just go to the feet of Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. When he saw those men with leprosy, he was not repulsed by their condition. He was moved because he loves them. And the same is true for us. Our sin, our shame, our failures, our history, whatever it is, when he looks at us, he is not repulsed by us. He is not going, well, go to the temple first and clean yourself up real good, and if you get yourself clean enough, then I'll be cool with you. He goes, no, Jeff, understand this, man. As you wallow in your filth, as you struggle with, at the deepest of depression, and whatever you're dealing with, he goes, you gotta know something, man. I looked down the annals of time thousands of years ago and I saw you at your worst and I said, I love him and I want him and I'm gonna carry his sin to the cross with me. 
He loves you. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, that there is no cleaning off. The cleansing happens at the feet of Jesus. It's not about cleaning ourselves up before we can come. So church, listen to me. It's all about, I, so, I know it's cliched, but look, it's all about Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Not just a rabbi, not just a prophet. He is the resurrected king of the universe. And he desperately loves you. And his whole purpose was to come and save the lost. Let's pray. As you bow your heads, I want to give you guys just a minute. Because maybe, maybe this is, maybe your heart's beating out of your chest right now. And you know he's calling you. Maybe you identify more with a leper than you've ever thought you did. <laughs> that you feel, I, I don't know him. I can't do enough to please him. I can't, any of these things. I know this though, I need his mercy. I know that he's the Lord and I know that he came to save. And so if he'll save me, Lord, I need your mercy. Let me tell you, you pray the same prayer that these disease-ridden men were screaming as if from a megaphone. You just say to him, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And know that God hears your cry that he loves you, and that you can be saved. That you can be restored back into the community of God. That's part of the purpose of the church, that there's this community that exists of redeemed people that, that you're not ostracized from, you're brought into. And the Bible uses words like reconciliation and even adoption to say you have been adopted into the family of God, that you can be here with brothers and sisters and be in the very family of God, that he doesn't just save you, he brings you into his family, he becomes your father. I just challenge you, don't leave this place without knowing for sure. Remember the point of Luke, that you might know, know that you are saved. And others of you might be here, and, and, and maybe you're, it's just a great reminder to go, man, I have, I have drifted to other things, but at the feet of the Savior is where it's at. And, and can I even say, let me just push on this, heads bowed still, and I'm, this is not me trying to make you question things, this is, this, is none of, this is about being sure. But look, if your experience with religion and faith has never led you to the point where you found yourself just laying at the feet of Jesus and thanking him and praising him for mercy, you may never have actually experienced his grace. So go to him with that prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. But if you are, you've been saved, you're part of the family of God, we, we have a way of wandering. It's just kind of part of our nature and forgetting what's really most important. And I believe that this morning, God's heart for this church is to say, be at my feet. There is wholeness at my feet. In my presence, there is perfect joy. You are loved, you are accepted, you do not need fear, you do not need worry. I have you. You are mine. I did not save you that I might leave you to flounder. I have a plan for you of good and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what the Lord has planned for you. So stay at my feet where there is hope, where there is assurance, where there is grace, 
where there's forgiveness and where there is healing. So just take a minute, wherever you are in life, and come back to Jesus. God, even as people are praying right now and talking with you, I just ask that your spirit would move in this room right now. That you would call those who are lost to you. That you would grant them faith to follow. I pray right now, Lord, as people are pouring their hearts out to you, that you would heal broken hearts. That you would give hope to those who have none. That you would show those who feel alone that they are not alone. That those who have drifted from you would be called back. I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts and lives of everyone here. That we would worship you in spirit and in truth. That we might not consider ourselves the ones who don't need saving, but that we might instead glory in the fact that we have such an amazing Savior. And I pray, God, over the people of this church, myself being one of them, Lord, that you would grant us, by your Spirit, the grace and the ability to be able to carry that message to those who need it around us. That we would realize we're not part of some elite club, but that we've been sent on a mission as ambassadors of your kingdom to love people, to show people that you care about their struggles, to show people that you can forgive them of sin, that you can make them whole, that only you can do that. And God, our flesh, that's difficult, it's scary sometimes. But then we return to your feet. We look to the cross, and we see what you endured on our behalf to set us free. And we're amazed again at your grace and your majesty and your power. And so, Lord, we repent of those fears and all those things, and we just say, Lord, have your way with this church. May you use us, Lord, somehow to be a beacon of hope to those who have none. And that we might hear more and more from the people around us, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. So, Lord, may you be with your people today, we pray. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand. Hey, I want to encourage you, if, if you did pray that prayer, if you said, man, I, I just, I, I want him, I want in, I need Jesus. Hey, we've got people that would love to spend some time with you. Remember, to be adopted into the family, you're part of a community, and there's just things to, to learn and to grow and to support one another. So, so whether it be just tapping the shoulder of the person next to you in the aisle and saying, hey, can you help me? Or whether it be coming to a community leader or, or any of the leaders in the church, anyone, like, please reach out to somebody, tell someone about that need, tell someone about that prayer, and let us come around you, celebrate that with you, and maybe walk with you as you learn what this whole thing's about. And then to the rest of us, man, how do we not tell other people when we realize that we are the lepers in that story? Like we're the ones that have been made whole. Like we've got to go. We've got to tell other people. So may God give us grace and insight and discernment in what that looks like for each of us in our own particular context. It looks different for a lot of people, but the mission's not different. The mission's the same. We got to tell people Jesus is Lord and he came to seek and save the lost. Pretty simple. Amen. 
I love you guys. Don't forget Pastor's Coffee if you're newer. We'll be in the coffee shop here in just a few minutes. Otherwise, I love you guys. Pray for us in the mission trip and the whole thing, and uh, I'll see you guys soon. God bless.